Hello, welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings, the show where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. Well, today we have a very special show for all of you because we got a big, fat, juicy bomb dropped on us. This is the um, juiciest bomb we've had to date. The juiciest, yes. The Vanity Fair article, of course. Vanity Fair, first look. You know what we're talking about. And if you don't, go stop what you're doing and go read the article. It is great. It is full, chock full of surprises. Um, Full of spoilers. Full of spoilers. Fire beware if you want to avoid spoilers. But if you are spoiler friendly, then uh, we're going to dig into all that good stuff. Yes, we are going to jump in and unpack this article. It's by far the most information we've gotten, by far. And so there's so much to talk about here. I personally came away from reading this article feeling really excited and positive about the upcoming show. It alleviated a lot of my fears. um, So that was my initial reaction. Did you have an initial reaction, Michael? I I did. And I think that my reaction is much the same as yours. But I will note that uh, the entire fandom did not exactly feel the same um, as it has yeah. been through this entire process. It is split. There are folks who found plenty of things to uh, be worried about or downright upset about. And we saw a lot of people expressing those frustrations online. In, a lot of feelings. In, a lot of feelings. Big and gross ways sometimes. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about all that. But uh, yeah, I felt it made me feel excited. I liked what I saw almost entirely. Um so I, mm-hmm. and I have to tell you, I was really surprised that we got this so close on the heels of those character posters. You know, we got 23 character posters, which to date that had been the biggest, juiciest leak, the most images we'd seen. And that gave us a ton to chew on, you know, a thousand times more than we'd gotten before that. And then just days later, we get this amazing Vanity Fair article that tells us so much, like actually so much. a lot. A lot. And we're getting a trailer this weekend, folks. If you are going to watch the Super Bowl, look out for that trailer. And if you're not going to watch the Super Bowl, look out for that trailer. (laughs) So (laughs) that's why I'm watching the Super Bowl this year. I'm going to be totally honest. I mean, if you you don't want to watch the Super Bowl, it's fine. I'm sure it'll be on the internet like an hour later. But yeah, very quickly. But I, it's clear to me that Amazon's really ramping up oh, yeah. promotion. And so, man, this podcast is just going to have uh, endless topics to talk about. Yeah, so we, tune were, in. we were barely doing, you know, once every two weeks, we were doing kind of bi-monthly episodes. But now I have a feeling we're going to be doing weekly, if not more. I mean, we just we just released an episode a couple of days ago uh, and we're doing another one tonight this is uh friday night and then we're going to record again after the trailer releases so just it's going to be hot and heavy here for a little while well it's clear that amazon has so much invested in this show i mean we'll, we can get into the numbers but the numbers are astounding the monetary the money that is spent on this show so obviously they want to promote the heck out of it uh which is fine with us but we're obviously there's they have so much invested that they need people to and they need it to be on people's radar oh, yeah. um and i think the time has come for promotion to begin so without further ado michael's going to kind of guide us through the article, and we're going to talk all about all about the juicy stuff we got. Yeah, so a Come little on. bit about the background of the article. The authors were giving were given exclusive access months ago, and they've been working on this piece for a while. They did several interviews with the showrunners, uh, and I actually tuned in. Uh, I'll mention this right at the top. After the article dropped, the same day, the authors of this Vanity Fair article did a 
sort of a, a live discussion on Twitter in one of their um, discussion spaces with thewondering.net. It was very widely attended. It was a great, great conversation. It was great to hear from the authors. And they talked a, about their experience writing the article and how much fun it was. And it was, you get a little bit more of a perspective. First of all, it, it told me that they were truly huge fans. These weren't just Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. random Vanity Fair staffers. These were true You can Tolkien tell that fans. from the article. That really yeah. comes through in the article. Mm-hmm. They know what they're talking about. Yeah. And um, and you really realize how much they know about what they're talking about um, through the article, but also in that discussion, I was really kind of surprised and impressed. So I'm glad that they got the 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 nod to write this article. And they got to spend a lot of time uh, with the showrunners and production, and they actually were able to see three episodes. This is mentioned in the article. They saw three of the finished episodes, and they saw them months ago. So it's actually kind of crazy. I think they said November that they had finished, or I don't know if they're fully finished or semi-finished, but they saw um, relatively finished episodes uh, a few months ago and that they're, that Amazon's going to be sitting on for a year before they're released in September. So that kind of surprised me. I didn't realize that they had that already done, but they did. And something that the author said was that they loved the episodes. And um, the female author who did a lot of the talking, uh, I, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she said that you know her, her perspective going in was okay if she watched the episodes and if they were mediocre or she didn't like them she you know she would have been politely positive about the whole thing that's just her personality and she didn't she wasn't gonna rip them I mean she said that if she didn't like what was going on or if it was a mess if the production was a mess um, if the access they were given revealed that it was a it was a total train wreck they would have reported that um, mm-hmm. but she also said that she came in with kind of a optimistic attitude. And if it was just mediocre, she kind of would have been polite about it. But she said that after watching them, she was like texting with a co-author and saying things like, is this awesome? Is this actually awesome? You know, and so she said that she really liked it. So that's the first time, first thing we've ever heard from anybody not associated with the production um, Mm -hmm. that said that this is going to be good and that the final result is good. So I am really excited about that sort of broad endorsement from this Vanity Fair uh, article author. Yeah, they absolutely mentioned that in the article as well, um, that it they came out after having seen the first three feeling positive and that it didn't fall short, which is, you know, that's definitely encouraging, encouraging, yeah. encouraging coming from fans of Tolkien. And it, it is clear from the article that they they were looking at it with a critical eye and they know canon. And they know what the essence of Tolkien is and feels like. And so that's good news for us. I'm a person who is less concerned with, is everything going to be canon? And is this going to stick true exactly to the, to the book? Um, but I care more that the, the essence of Tolkien is preserved. Even if they take creative risks which actually they definitely take creative risks we know, we know from the article and they say as much in the article yeah so yeah you know i have the same approach as you although i was thinking i was thinking just the other day and this is a little bit of a sidebar but you know we've consciously made the decision to approach adaptations in that way that, okay the important thing is the essence the themes um, yeah and let's not get too bogged down in the minutia uh, because those things aren't those aren't the core of tolkien they're things we care about but uh, and that are fun but Right. We have to ask ourselves, is it really important before we start really caring about it? Mm-hmm. And so we've decided to approach it 
in in that way, that sort of like broad holistic way, is the adaptation or the uh, the adaptive choices of the director consistent with the broader themes of Tolkien. That's what's important. Mm-hmm. And yet, absolutely, I find myself <laughs> doing what a lot of other people do. If there's anything that doesn't any detail that's off, I notice it. It triggers something in my brain, and I have I still have like a bit of a negative reaction. So I actually have to fight fight that impulse that I think every Tolkien fan is dealing with that impulse. They have that impulse. You know, if a character's hair color isn't the the color that they expected, if they don't look the way that they imagine the character would look in their head, there's just some something that fires in their brain um, that says, you know, warning, warning, this is not good. And it's a negative reaction. And I, I, I just want to let our audience know I have that same impulse, that same, those, those feelings arise in me as well. Uh, I've just made a decision to kind of, fight them a little bit and think through things from a a more critical lens to really keep in mind what's important here and what's not. And I think, and I think ultimately once you start watching the show, all that stuff is going to fall away. If the show is good, all those hypercritical people who are so worried, they're going to embrace it because it will be good uh, at a fundamental level. And the goodness is not going to depend on how consistent it is with this unimportant minutiae. Like people right. think that that stuff is important now when they're getting dribs and drabs. But once you watch the show, the themes and it's all going to wash over you. And if, you, if you're pulled into this universe, that's the only thing that's going to matter. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope. Unless it is just so wildly different and disappointing. But it, I don't, it doesn't sound like it's going to be that way. And the thing is, the show is going to be a thing unto itself. It's going to be different. Just be mm-hmm. by nature of the beast. They had to, they invented a lot, first of all. And then they were drawing, we know, just from the appendices. So they dug deep into that and they've, they've imagined up and filled in gaps and done a lot of that. So it is going to be a thing unto itself. We can't expect, as they say in the article, there are fans who want us to make a history of, of Middle Earth. And a documentary, not, yeah. Yeah, a document. That's not what we're doing. So let's just put our expectations there. Um, but since you mentioned images, would are we wanting to start with unpacking these images first and then work our way through? Let's do that. Let's. There are several images in here, and uh, it's kind of a shock. Like I said before, we got these character posters just a few days ago, and those were the first images we got, and that felt like a ton. But we didn't have faces, and now we get faces. We get full scenes. We get to see the sets. We get to see the landscapes. I mean, it's. I got to say, before we dive into the specifics, I thought they were beautiful. I I loved the yeah. look and feel of what we were getting. It's perfect. Spot on for me. And, uh, you know, there were things that were reminiscent of Jackson, but not exactly the same. And uh, so it felt it still felt like its own thing, but it felt right. So I, I was really excited just at a, at a broad level. I liked what I was seeing. But let's dive into these specific images. So the first image that we see in the article is an image of Galadriel. And uh, I will read the caption, which I think gives us a little bit of extra information. It says, Galadriel, commander of the Northern Armies, end quote. And in this image, we see that she's wearing the same armor, sort of silver armor, silver, silver armor from the character poster that we saw. There's mm-hmm. a Feanorian star on her chest. It's an eight-pointed star that we um, would recognize as this sigil of Feanor, who's the uh, Noldorian elf that created the Silmarils. And she's got a sword on her back. She is walking away from a big fireball. I mean, this is, you know, straight out of like an action movie. Yeah. Um, 
and it, she's in what looks like some sort of i would say a human town it's uh it doesn't look like a, an elvish kingdom or mm-hmm. anything it just kind of looks like wooden houses and it's been right. there's destruction behind her um and so this so first thing this tells us between the image itself and the caption it confirms Galadriel is going to be sort of a warrior queen. She's going to be engaged in battle. There's a military component to her leadership. Um, and that is a really interesting point that a lot of people have mixed feelings about. Um, I know I do. I think mm-hmm. I, I, I love strong, powerful female characters. I think what gives people mixed feelings about it is that's not how Galadriel was portrayed in the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a much different type of character her role is different uh, and so there's a there's a lot of debate going on both about whether or not this is consistent with the lore itself um, that we get in the second age and what we know about Galadriel's backstory and also whether this usage of her character is consistent with how Tolkien intended to use her um, narratively in general so not just is is her history accurate but is this thematically consistent with her, her purpose in, in this story. So I, I kind of want to get your take on those things. Yeah. So first of all, I don't think it's out of the question that she at some point was a warrior. It, like, for example, Agreed. there's snippets, you know, she fought bravely against Feanor. We don't know if that was actual physical battle, but it could be interpreted that way. So right. I, I don't think it's... That's back in the first age when Feanor was leading the revolt of the Noldor out of the Blessed Realm. And right. You know the first kin slaying at Alcalande, where the Noldor basically stole, <laughs> stole ships, and right. there was a big battle, and and what the first really great evil deed of the Noldor, and she fought against that, and that's what you're referring to. The text actually yeah, exactly. says she fought against Feanor. Whether it was a literal physical fight or some other sort of fight, we don't know. But yeah, that can be interpreted to support the notion that she was a fighter. That she was a fighter. So per, I don't think that's that big of a stretch. I think. I think the thing that maybe is concerning is that in the article, um, it states that she is, she is much more, um, I don't think they said brash, but she's a little more maybe aggressive and less wise. Um, and granted, she's yeah, supposed the, the to be- Yeah, the text they use in that article is, they describe Galadriel as angry and brash as she is clever and certain that evil is looming closer than anyone realizes. Yeah, so that's a very, that is that's a different Galadriel of what I've had in my mind. But it is I think they're playing on this as a younger this is a younger Galadriel. She's existing in a time where maybe she's seen a lot, right? And war has just sort of petered out, but evil is still lurking, so she's suspicious. Um I think I am really okay with this version of Galadriel because I think it is definitely a modern, it sort of modernizes the character in a way. Um, She's perhaps not as feminine and docile, um, but, but, you know, we may see many different sides of her. So that remains to be seen. Um, Yeah. And I would just chime in. I I would agree with you that, to, to get into the lore a little bit more, um, I think that, so the the description of her is angry and brash. So I don't know that mm. I ever thought of her as angry and brash, but she, no. her backstory is, she is more brash than she is when we see her in the third age. So we know from her backstory that she wanted a kingdom of her own, that even though she 
rejected Feanor and, you know, fought against him uh, at the Kinslaying, she nonetheless elected to go to Middle-earth. She still, she didn't That's go back true. to the Blessed Realm. She decided she wanted to go to Middle-earth. She wanted a kingdom of her own. So she had pride. She had ambitions. Um, yeah. And that is sort of, con- I think, consistent with the idea of brashness. I think it fit into that uh, character description. And so this is, you know, the Second Age Galadriel isn't young Galadriel. Um, you know, the first age is a lot, lot, lot longer than the second or third ages. Together, For the show so. purposes, though, we're going to get, we I think, think of we're going to yeah, get. As the, yeah. the younger Galadriel. Yeah. And so she's more in the, in the time of her life when she is seeking out, uh, I guess, a lordship. You know, she wants to rule in some capacity and she's a leader and she's more actively engaged. Um, and I think that a more actively engaged Galadriel and more actively engaged elves in general is very consistent with what we know about the second age because the third age is all about the elves in the third age are fading and they're leaving the, you know, they're leaving these shores. Um, It's no longer the time of the elves. They are fading and no longer as connected to the living world of of middle earth. You know, they've sort of retired to their collective corners. Galadriel and Elrond both have rings of power whose primary function is preservation. So they have these little realms that are timeless and preserved, but in so preserving them, they're kind of, no longer taking part in the the real activities of the world. And that is, and there's a lot to say about that in the Lord of the Rings and in the Third Age, but that is not the version of the elves we get in the Second Age yet because they're, this is the story of how they even get the rings. Um, right. And Sauron preys on their desire to preserve things, and that's how he manipulates them. So this is before all the, the preservation and fading. Uh, and they're more actively engaged and more a part of Middle Earth. This is more the time of the elves than than is the Third Age. So to see them be more active, to see them engage in war, and to see Galadriel engage in war, it it is not entirely inconsistent with what we know about the lore. Um, Very true. And I think picking Galadriel to be the one to embody the moment that the elves are in is smart. She's going to be our female lead and we need to latch on to her and she needs to be in the action and it and it i think what we know about the show it needs to be in this capacity that she's that she's literally in the action as well as um you know probably metaphorically at times as well so one one thing just to give voice to the um other point of view you know one criticism of tolkien is and always has been an his portrayal of women in the legendarium, the lack of representation in the Lord of the Rings itself. Um, and there's, that's a whole topic unto itself that I, I do want to tackle at some point. We'll have some guests on, um, you know, we have a great guest coming up in a future episode to talk about the transformation of Arwen um, from the books to the movies. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there, but just very broadly, there aren't really any expressed characters in any of the legendarium really that are female and who are warriors other than um boy my mind's a blank uh Eowyn thank you goodness gracious I, I've been fi- I should be fired from this podcast uh, other than Eowyn <laughs> who, who of course is I mean she's a very very notable uh, example yeah. of that but in general otherwise there really aren't any very many examples if any of warrior females now if you want to dig way back into the history of Middle Earth and early early drafts their conception of his conception of certain like female Valar and things like that, or Maiar. Okay. You can find a little bit more of that, 
but in general, the idea of warrior women is pretty absent. And so I think when mm-hmm. people look at this and say, wow, this is this is not consistent with Tolkien at all, that's kind of what they're saying. I take the opposite view. I say he he didn't say it didn't happen. <laughs> so I think there's room to there's plenty of room to believe that Galadriel would have been a more active and militarily active character in, in these ages. Um, but other people would point out, like, look, Tolkien never wrote about female characters quite like this, um, other than Eowyn. Um, that's where where they're coming from. I think ultimately it's something that we need to see play out. You know, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of versions of um, feminist representation that you can get. I think uh, taking female characters and, and putting them into the action and having them engage in military exploits, you know, the an area which had previously been preserved for the male characters, you know, um, as a result of sexism, we never saw female warrior characters. And so it's it's good then to write stories where the females are occupying those roles because they've been shut out of those roles. So, uh, you know, feminist expansion um, should operate to get them into those spots. But of course, that's not the only way to um, engage in feminist representation. Feminism doesn't mean that all your women have to be engaged in military exploits, right? So there are, there are other qualities, like the qualities that Galadriel displays in the Lord of the Rings texts, where yeah, absolutely, there are different important qualities. And remember also that Tolkien didn't care much for militarism; like he didn't write about battle sequences. He didn't elevate or glorify fighting in general. So mm-hmm. I I think to the extent I would be concerned about this change, it's not that we see Galadriel being a warrior. It's that it concerns me that Amazon would emphasize being a warrior, whether it's male or female, a male or female character. I don't want this show to become just a big action sequence. And no, for them no, to no, think no. like battle scenes are the way that we identify who our heroes are. And, you know, skill with a sword is how we know who our protagonist is. I don't want that kind of show. So that's the only piece of this that gives me any pause really. Um, Otherwise, I think there's, you know, we'll just see how it plays out. Yeah, I think there's plenty to be excited about, and especially what the article mentions about her performance, Morphe Clark's performance. I love the section that talks about um, everyone crowding around the screen and erupting in cheers as they film a scene where she is crying, doing a close-up, talking about how she needs to fight and it was them saying it was so compelling. Um, but what do you make of her being out to sea, stranded at sea, with uh, what we can maybe assume is her the romantic interests? Uh, well, Hal Haldir, what's his Hal, name? Halbrand. Yeah. Hal so, Halbrand. Sorry. Yeah. So we we do learn more about Galadriel from this article, other than just that first picture. We see another picture of her set adrift in the sea, mm-hmm. and apparently this mm-hmm. is actually one of the opening shots, the opening struggles. She is. Literally, and I think it implies that because she was basically uh, saying, hey, there's something wrong with this world, there's a danger on the horizon, that she's sort of, it almost implied that she was kind of exiled or something. Um, but for some reason or another, she gets lost at sea and not alone. She is with a human, a man um, named Halbrand, which is a character that they created uh, for this for the show. And I'll quote from the article, by episode two, her warnings set her adrift, literally and figuratively, until she's struggling for survival on a raft in the storm-swept, sundering seas alongside a mortal castaway named Halbrand, played by Charlie Vickers, who is a new character introduced in the show. Galadriel is fighting for the future. Halbrand is running 
from the past. And uh, per Nerd of the Rings, um, he later confirmed on Twitter that this Halburn character is the um, the character poster that we saw that looked like it was a, a Rohiric character, you know, holding a, a sword with a horse pommel mm, and sort of the red yes. fishy scale looking armor. That's Halbrand, and he is a Northman, which is kind of consistent from the caption of the the picture. We know that Galadriel is the commander of the Northern armies, so she probably comes across uh, this this guy on one of her campaigns, and she's trying to save the world. He's trying to run from it. Uh, I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know what past he would be running from because we don't know exactly what year in the He's second age this totally is taking place. He's a totally invented character too. We have nothing. Yeah. We don't have much to go on with him. So it's all, it's pure speculation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you ready to move on to the next next one? Let's do it. All right. So we get a great image here of Owen Arthur as Prince Durin the Fourth, Prince of the bustling subterranean realm of Khazad-dûm. I really like this picture. It doesn't give us a lot of detail. It's kind of, it's uh, a shot from, it basically looks like a character poster. It's just him posing for the camera. Um, but I just love the look of the dwarf, uh, this dwarf. He looks like, it reminds me of Gimli from the Lord of the Rings rather than Thorin from the Hobbit. And I always thought Gimli was, the Gimli from the Lord of the Rings look was more consistent. We with want a, we want a dwarf. We want a proper dwarf. This is a dwarf. This is they're giving us everything we want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't reinvent the wheel. Give us, you know, some what we're used to with dwarves. We want to see the hairy, long bearded, uh, beloved, beloved dwarves that we know in picture. Yeah. Like I'm okay. I'm really okay with changing the look and feel of a lot of of different folks and characters and races. But mm-hmm. uh, for dwarves, this is just kind of exactly what I want. So it's pretty yeah. straightforward. That was one of my many sort of quibbles with the Hobbit films. Look, I like Richard Armitage, and I thought his performance was actually one of the highlights in that movie. He did a lot with what he was given. Um, but he's, you know, he, he looked more like a, a sexy man. <laughs> I mean, he, he looked more like an yeah. elf to me, you know, and they didn't they didn't dwarf him up all that much. He had a very short cropped beard. I mean, he was hot, dude. He was hot in that, <laughs> in that yeah. movie and not very dwarvish. So. Um, I like that we get a very dwarfy looking character here. Definitely. Uh, I think the next image is far more interesting. Let's just talk yes, about that. Yeah. <laughs> the caption here on this is the dwarven princess Disa, played by Sofia Nombete, standing at Casa Doom's entrance. And this is actually the exact same picture that we got from the character poster. This is the, uh, we talked about this already. We identified who the dwarven queen was. Actually, it's a princess. We find out not a queen. Um, and this is the one where she's got her hands folded in front of her with some gold dust on her hands. You can see runes behind her and uh, the Dwaro scholar who, again, love this guy. He's, he's a Lord of the Rings expert, but primarily an expert in dwarven languages, which is such a rare thing. Um, he translated some of the runes and he said it appears to be or reference the chamber of Mazarbul, which is inconsistent with the caption of the photo because it said, She's standing at Casa Doom's entrance, which is not the Chamber of Mazarbul. But maybe for some reason they wrote about the Chamber of Mazarbul on Casa Doom's entrance. I don't know. Um, but there is one thing about this picture that has been getting all the attention. You want to talk about that, Jen? Um, sure. <laughs> this is not something that personally bothers me at all. Um but some people are upset that she doesn't have a beard. This woman 
does not have a beard. We should mention this is a woman of color, and and that's cool too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she does not have a beard. She looks pretty feminine to me. Um, I I did not realize that it is mentioned that female dwarves do have beards, but apparently it is it is somewhere in the canon that that female dwarves have beards. Yeah. Um, so I'll I'll dig into that a little bit. I got some references here, um, and this is one of the things. So you know, we posted on Twitter that we were going to be recording tonight. And uh, Varking Runesong, who's uh, one of the staff members of Fellowship of Fans. I hope I got your name right. I just realized that I've never said that out loud. I just read your name. I don't actually say it out loud. So uh, I hope I got it right. Um, message me if I got it wrong. But he said, talk about the dwarvish beard issue. Um, so that's what we're going to do here. And so do dwarves have beards? Now, if you watch the Lord of the Rings movies, you'll remember a joking reference to that um, in the Two Towers uh, when Aragorn and Eowyn and Gimli are are riding along and Gimli's talking about dwarf women. And he makes this joke, you know, uh, there people think that there are no dwarf women um, and that dwarves just spring out of the ground because uh, dwarf women are so um, infrequently seen. And um, they actually look, they're so much alike dwarf men and look in appearance that, that people just assume they're the same. And then Aragorn makes this, this joke it looks like a joke to eowyn behind gimlin's back and he says it's the beards okay so that's that's the reference in the movie and that is actually based on some legitimate canon material uh in in the lord of the rings in the appendices and in uh in in some extended materials so the most canonical evidence for uh, dwarven women with beards comes in appendix a of the lord of the rings and it says quote they are in voice and appearance and in garb if they must go on a journey so like to the dwarf men that the eyes and ears of other people cannot tell them apart okay now that is you can surmise maybe that they must look the same but that's not explicit you know maybe they they just have such big bustly hair and their clothes and that's what it is um and also it's not clear whether dwarf men all have beards just from that 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 line but um, i'll tell you that if you go through other lines there's a lot of evidence to indicate that yeah all all dwarf men have beards um the, there's a line in the hobbit that we read that says uh, bilbo's referring to bilbo his only comfort was that he couldn't be mistaken for a dwarf as he had no beard so that indicates okay all dwarf men have beards and based on the quote before that we know that all dwarf women look like dwarf men Still, though, these are implications, and that would be kind of dicey at best and not enough to get all hot and heavy about. But there is a very explicit reference in The War of the Jewels, which is one of the volumes of the history of Middle-earth, which was published uh, posthumously by Christopher Tolkien based on Gerard Tolkien's writings and drafts. And this is in the later Quintus Silmarillion of the Nalgrim and the Adain. The Nalgrim refers to dwarves. This is written in 1951, so it's, you know, this is well after um, he's been working long and hard on the Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien wrote that no man nor elf has ever seen a beardless dwarf unless he were shaven in mockery and would then be more like to die of shame. For the Nalgrim have beards from the beginning of their lives, male and female alike. So can't get more straightforward than that. Female dwarves had beards, no doubt. 
Yeah, I, I'm still just unperturbed by this. This is one of those details that I think, like, it, if you have such a tight grip on things being totally accurate, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, it struck me as, like, not... I never thought much... I mean, here's the thing. We never see dwarven female dwarven characters in the story, so you just don't think about them. And so no one's really, like, emotionally invested in bearded female dwarves, um, at least not based on any stories that they've read to the extent anyone's invested. It's in like really an entirely abstract level. They read somewhere that female dwarves should have beards. And so they're like, Oh, well then it should be consistent with that. But that's, you know, the, name one female dwarven character uh, with a beard that we, that we learn about. There's none. So I just never really thought much about it. Um, but I, I do think it is interesting nonetheless to talk about it because there, it goes to gender representation, gender norms, and so you have to ask yourself, and this is part of the discussion that's going on, why would Amazon deliberately choose, if indeed, and this we're going to get into this, whether or not this picture indicates that she has a beard or not a beard, or, uh, There's, I want to dig into that a little bit, but let's assume it kind of appears at first glance that she's not bearded at all. Why would Amazon choose to depict this female as beardless when the only information, good information we have about female dwarves is that they are bearded? And that's just a decision to conform to, you know, gender norms and what we normally typically see of women. And they're probably just like, well, bearded women is a sideshow. Um, so we're just not going to get into it. And I think some people are like, hey, maybe you should think more about that. You know, why, why can't you have bearded women? And I think a lot of people are forgetting, to the extent we don't care about it, those people are forgetting Peter Jackson had bearded dwarves, female dwarves in The Hobbit. We saw some dwarves, dwarvish women, and they had beards. Um, they're in the background. Yeah. They're not like in the foreground and, you know, the camera doesn't focus on them, but they're there. And it's like not distracting. It's not a big deal. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I'm still mostly with you. It's just, I, I'm not that invested in this whole concept. Um, I haven't thought much about it, but um, some people An are debating topic it. To so raise. it is interesting. Yeah. It's interesting to raise nonetheless. Um, nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, I think the aesthetic that they went with is really quite striking and beautiful they definitely made choices with this princess i think mostly overall i just i can't wait to see who this princess is disa and and Mm -hmm. what is her role gonna be she looks like she looks fierce she looks intense i love her staring down the camera like that it's a powerful look um yeah it's gorgeous I, i i i'm very pumped by this image um, but I want to quickly move on to the next one because we just no, have no, so no, much. No, 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 no. You're going to slow us down. We have so much to get to I in know, the article. But this so. is, this is, we haven't yet gotten to the piece that Varking Moonsong wanted us to talk about, which is. Oh, I everybody, it was the beards. <laughs> well, it, it, it is the bearded issue, but everybody started this discussion by saying, looking at this picture and saying she has no beard because at first glance, it looks like she has no beard whatsoever. But if you really zoom in and you really, I mean, you really got to zoom in and you kind of got to squint a little bit. Uh, and I tweeted no this way. out. I tweeted this out on our Twitter. You can see some wisps. You know, it's very wispy. Some stubble. Under the cheek. No stubble, no stubble, but wisps, no stubble. like a very thin beard. And that's kind of- I'm just not of, seeing it. Uh, I'm, you got to squint in. and turn your head to the right. And <laughs> um, it, it's hard to see, but people are saying, okay, there's, maybe there's some wisps there. And that's kind of like what, what we saw. What if she gets really insulted because she's like, that wasn't intentional. No, <laughs> was, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like the, the, the bearded female dwarves in The Hobbit, um, Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, their beards were- more like that too. They were not like big, thick, gimli beards. They were a little more wispy. 
And so they're saying, hey, maybe that's what they're doing. They are going to have some facial hair. It's just going to be really light so that they have that, but it's they have the, the beards on the female dwarves, but it's not going to be overt and in your face. So we still don't entirely know which direction they're going with this. We may have some version of uh, bearded female dwarves. We don't know yet based on this picture. Huh. So one of the great mysteries. One of the great mysteries. Okay. So a lot to be yet. <laughs> now we'll move on. Wheel. Moving on. If you're enjoying Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, you really should check out our Wheel of Time podcast hosted by Rourke Tharmston. Rourke is a Wheel of Time expert and each week breaks down the latest episode from Amazon's adaptation of the Wheel of Time with a panel of brilliant and funny guests who have never read the books. If you've already read the Wheel of Time books, this podcast will be fun for you because you'll get to experience the show through the eyes of first-timers. And if you're new to the Wheel of Time universe yourself, then Watch Party Wheel of Time is really perfect because there are no spoilers. That's right. Watch Party Wheel of Time gives you spoiler-free analysis and discussion of each episode. Check it out today, available on every major podcasting platform. Watch Party Wheel of Time. Okay, the next image, and this was a panel of three. They were all displayed right next to each other. The caption is, the sylvan elf Erandir, played by Ishmael Cruz Cordova, is a character who's been created for the series, end quote. And again, this corresponds to the character poster that we saw, uh, like a male with wooden armor. And yes, this confirms that Ishmael Cruz Cordova is playing an elf. He's playing a sylvan elf. And he's holding a, a torch. He's in sort of a, I think he's in the forest, but it's a very, very dark forest. It could be a cave. Um, it's really hard to tell. I, th- I think we're looking at more of a, a foresty area. But a couple things about this, and this, this dominated the conversation. Unfortunately, a lot of what dominated the conversation with these images is how the characters looked <laughs> and their demographics, gender representation, racial representation. So Ishmael Cruz Cordova is a person of color, and he's playing an elf. And he is the first person of color to play an elf in any Tolkien um, adaptation. And this is obviously getting a lot of attention, both good and bad. Other things that we'll that we'll get to, he has short hair. A lot of people feel very strongly that elves have long hair only. And he's got pointy ears, which it's up for debate whether elves actually have pointy ears. Uh, everybody assumes they do because that's how they're represented in a lot of Tolkien fan arts, especially after Jackson's Lord of the Rings, where Jackson went heavy into, okay, elves have pointy ears. So everyone assumes that they have pointy ears, but that's something that is not exactly clear. So I want to we're going to table all that for now because we are going to talk about that do elves have pointy ears? Do elves have long hair? And could there be elves of color? Before we get to those more juicy topics, what do you just think about this image um, and the whole the look of this sylvan elf in general? Um, I love it. It's very cool. I think it's very earthy. I'm going to be so obnoxious and toot my own horn and say I knew it. You called it. <laughs> you called it. <laughs> I called it. I, I in an early episode I said I think Ishmael Cruz Cordova is going to play an elf. I think he's very it, he just has these sharp features and I think he's going to be I think he's going to be an elf. And then when we saw the photo, I thought, "Ooh, this armor looks very elvish to me." Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, so excited that we get a sylvan elf represented and uh, that it's him and that he will be playing a significant role. We know he's going to be uh, very prominent and so yeah and later it mentions that he's in a romance with a human woman mm-hmm. uh so that is really interesting he's in a in, in a romantic relationship with a nazanin boniades bronwyn who's a single mother and mm-hmm. healer in forbidden middle earth love. forbidden love uh that's 
that's that's juicy to me. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm Very not sure where they're pulling that from. Out their butts, you know, what, I think. It, yeah, it just butts. I I don't I don't um I think my hope had kind of been that like at it every character is going to be a mix of canon characters or like strongly inspired by. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the case, but I, I'm kind of thinking that's not the case. I, I was always prepared for them to just create a lot of characters out of whole cloth because we don't have enough canon characters, um, you know, that exist at the same time in the same vicinity to create a plot. <laughs> we just we just didn't um, because Tolkien didn't give us that much. So yeah. I knew they were going to have to fill out the character list with with made up characters. So I was perfectly prepared for that. And and these two are two of those totally made up characters. Um you know, getting into the the relationship, the elf human relationship, that kind of bums me out a little bit just because I um not bums me out, but look, the intermingling of elves and humans is very important thematically for for Tolkien and that's yeah. You know, all of the elf human marriages and linkages have an very important historical purpose in his stories. And they're important partially because they hardly ever happen. Um, And yet it seems that everybody who's adapting the work and does sort of an extended adaptation where they build out the world and extrapolate, they seem to want to, to play with that. You know, we saw that in the Hobbit movies uh, where Tariel was in love with a dwarf. So actually going beyond the, the elf man union trying to do an elf dwarf union, which was even more annoying because not only did it undermine the significance and uniqueness of elves marrying non-elves and the importance that can play thematically in Tolkien's Legendarium, it also undermined the importance of Gimli and Legolas's relationship by showing us another uh, dwarf-elvish friendship in the, in the same lifetime. So it's like, oh, I guess that's not as big of a deal as it's supposed to be. That's how it made me feel. And so Jackson was like kind of playing with that in a way I didn't care for. And again, we're kind of seeing that, okay, well, here's just another elf man relationship. And apparently this happens all the time and it's not that special. That's kind of what it makes me think. Yeah, I think that they're, they've made a very clear choice to hearken back to Arwen Aragorn. Let's give the people what they want with this human elven relationship, but in reverse and right, and go with right, that right, because right. it was so effective in the movie. And we know that they're taking that tack just with the fact that there's hobbits. They even in this article mention, you know, what would Middle Earth be without hobbits? You have to have hobbits. Yeah. Um, and so they are definitely playing to the crowd and, and uh, being a little cheeky in that way i i don't know it's it's i'm gonna see if it lands or not i'm keeping a fairly open mind you made a good point that i didn't initially think about you pointed out that with this union the elf is a man and the human is a woman whereas in the legendarium all the other examples of that are um the elf is a woman and the human is a man so we get arwen and aragorn um we get baron and luthien and just Let's just run through those examples real quick, how significant those unions are. Uh, Arwen and Aragorn, you know, heir of Elendil, daughter of Elrond, sort of the leader of the Noldor, the even star of her people, and their union marks the, uh, coincides with the defeat of Sauron and the um, reinstatement of the Gondorian realm and the Numenorian realm in Middle-earth. Very important relationship. Uh, Baron and Luthien, 
uh, <laughs> they defeat Morgoth for Christ's sake, you know, or, you know, Luthien is the most powerful or significant elf in all of history, say. Um, their love story is the love story that Tolkien felt represented him and his wife. You know, they have Baron and Luthien on their gravestones. That's how important he considered that, that, that union. Their union ultimately led to Arendil, who literally saved the entire world at the end of the First Age by sailing back to Valinor to get the Valar and uh, all the elves in the Blessed Realm to come back and whip Morgoth's butt. So these unions are incredibly important historically, um, which is why I feel like I don't like seeing that diminished by just sort of haphazard elf human unions. Does it diminish it or does it highlight the fact that let's include that because it is part of, it's a big part of the canon and it's a standout piece of history and I, that maybe they'll emphasize that it is forbidden and rare. We don't, I'm we don't know yet. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to emphasize that it's forbidden and rare, but I think that's it's going to look more like a, a Romeo and Juliet type of thing, which I like mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet, the forbidden love, but the the significance of the elf human marriages does not end with just the fact that it's for forbidden love and just like love conquers all. That's not what those are really about. And I do think it diminishes it because the whole point symbolically of having only a couple examples and having those examples be mm-hmm. coincide with significant like earth changing events um, is it highlights and glorifies unification between different races and Mm -hmm. so when people talk about you know race and racism and tolkien was tolkien a racist i think his emphasis on the importance of different races and different groups coming together and that and those examples of that occurring being incredibly significant and positive is one of the most important examples thematically of of tolkien writing race positive stories Mm -hmm. um and i think if you're if you don't acknowledge that and realizing realize that you're really missing something important about what Tolkien was doing in my, in my opinion. And I, yeah. And I agree with you. And I think they also are wanting compelling love stories because that's what the masses like. That's what people want. And they're trying to make something that is going to straddle and satisfy the two worlds. And inevitably I, and by the two worlds, I mean like the hardcore Tolkien fans and then the, just the average consumer because they yeah. need the average consumer to be into this show. It can't just be us like super nerds. So I see why they did it. I get it. And again, I say we'll see if it lands. Yeah. And yeah, I, I'm not this is not something I'm like upset about or I'm concerned or anything like that. It's, you know, uh, I'm talking in sort of a hyper critical or analytical way. Um, sure. but I, I like this actor. I like this actress. I like, I like the look, I like everything in the images. So I'm still excited to see what, the, what they do with it. You know, none of this bothers me, quote unquote. Right. It's a, it's a good, yeah, it's a good, it's a good point though. Yeah. Um, speaking of elves. Yeah. Let's, let's go to the next one. Uh, we get another picture here. Um, of, love this picture by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, First, I'll read the caption. The half-elf Elrond, played by Robert Arameo, is a politically ambitious young leader. And we see an image of him sitting in the grass. He's got short, blonde hair and pointy ears. Uh, You know, it's a sort of a twilight type of shot. Very beautiful. Uh, What are you thinking here? Um, 
I'm excited to to watch Elrond kind of rise up in the ranks and and in in uh, I believe they said he's going to be in Linden. Yep. And kind of watch him become the major player that he becomes. This is a super, super young face to me. So I'm wondering, again, I think that everybody, the young version of them, yes, we know they weren't really technically young. Right. But I do think for the purpose, again, for the purpose of the show, these are going to seem like young adults. Right. Well, I was actually having this debate with my brother-in-law and he's a big Lord of the Rings fan. It's one of the things that we've bonded over. And he was, he, he pointed out, um, he didn't like Robert Arameo as Elrond because he didn't look right to him. He looked too young and he does have a, a baby face. I mean, he really looks like kind of a baby face. And so he doesn't yeah, yeah. have this sort of, uh, regal bearing. Dignified. Yeah. Dignified. Very, he doesn't look all that adult. I mean, he's 29. Mm-hmm. So he is a young man. Uh, my counter argument to that is, and that's not, you know, I don't feel that strongly about this because he doesn't. He doesn't look like Elrond to me either uh, right now. I'm sure he will if he's a good actor and he occupies the role. But um, my counter to that was Elrond actually was pretty young in the Second Age. Um, he, hmm. was a, he was a young yeah. elf born relatively close to the end of the First Age. Um, so he's pretty young at the start of the Second Age. So he's kind of like, I, I would say, and I haven't done the math, um, You know, I've read through the Nature of Middle-Earth and Tolkien told us, the aging of elves and that half elves age differently. So I haven't done the math to see like where he should be in his growth in mid second age. But I think this is about right. 29 feels about right for where Elrond mm-hmm. would be at this time. What I found really interesting, not just about this picture, but also comments later in the article. And actually let me read a couple of those comments. So yeah, read uh, them. quote, a canny young elven architect and politician named Elrond will rise to prominence in the mystical capital of Lindon. And then later on, it says, or somewhere else in the article, it says, quote, the series will juggle 22 stars and multiple storylines from deep within the dwarf mines of the Misty Mountains to the high politics of the Elven Kingdom of Lindon and the humans' powerful Atlantis-like island Numenor. So we get three references to politics, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and two of which link Elrond to the politics. So I was assuming that to the extent we're going to get any sort of political intrigue in the show, it was going to occur in Numenor. Um, But it looks like the political intrigue, maybe we'll still get some in Numenor, but we're definitely going to get some in Linden. In Linden. And yeah, and it says specifically that he's politically ambitious. Uh So I thought that was kind of interesting. That's like a different Elrond than I think I have in my head, but but it does make sense and it's not totally uh out of the question that he is a, an ambitious yeah political player well it, it's interesting i i never really think about elves as being politically ambitious you don't think about politics no um, not really you don't think about a lot a of those bit. that's not really very high fantasy is it <laughs> politics that's more uh, george R. R. martin type fantasy it's a little more earthbound and and, and realistic but I do like political dramas, so um, even if it doesn't strike me as politically Tolkien, if it's done well, I'm sure I'll enjoy it. But uh, I never really think about elves as being political and political maneuvering and things like that. Um, But it did make me think, you know, how did Elrond rise to prominence? I mean, we know, obviously, he is the son of Arendelle. um, So just in terms of bloodlines, he would be near the top of the pack anyway. And, you know, Tolkien doesn't really ask too many questions when it comes to appointing kings and how they get that power you know if you have the bloodline you become the king and it's he doesn't scrutinize it too much more than that um but there is some room i think without offending 
my pure Tolkienist notions that much. Some room to explore how an elf, high bloodline or no, obtains and maintains power within the mm-hmm. elvish communities. And um, I think we're going to see that. You know, how does a, a young Elrond navigate amongst you know Gilgalad the king and Celebrimbor and other much older uh, elves to find himself in a position of power um, relatively early in his life. So I, I am, I am uh, excited to see that. Yeah, I am as well. And I think uh, getting this young, you know, plucky actor, Robert Arameo to play him is, it's an exciting, much different uh, version than we've ever seen before. So that alone is 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 really exciting and oh man i feel like we have to just jump to the elrond galadriel picture in linden because oh, it's i died just while we're mentioning it, it's beautiful <sighs> it's so beautiful yeah i mean you can tell it's a very intimate picture actually so yeah. i think that relationship will really be explored and fleshed out that is very cool we know that they did have a close relationship mm-hmm. they, she's his mother-in-law yeah she's his mother-in-law but which is funny because they look to be the same age, but that's elves for you, baby. Yeah, that's right. Um, but it's a close relationship and we know them. We're attached to them already. So seeing them, um, navigate this world as younger mm-hmm. elves will be really great. Yeah. And Lyndon, man, it's going to be a spectacular set from the looks of things. Yeah. This, I just really got it. Let's pause for a second on this picture of Elrond and Gladriel and Lyndon. Just the the framing of the picture, the coloring in the background. This is one of the most striking pictures I've ever seen, just anywhere and anything. Uh, it is so beautiful. It feels almost biblical. Um, you know, you have sort of like yeah. uh, some reclining characters in, in the back right that look like, it almost feels like a Leonardo da Vinci painting. It looks like a painting. That's mm-hmm. what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. In the mode of kind of those, I, I don't is that Renaissance? Is Leonardo DiCaprio re- Renaissance? You know, the Renaissance paintings um, mm-hmm. that, that painted the Virgin Mary. It evokes a lot of those Did you just say Leonardo DiCaprio? I probably did. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I knew what you meant. I da Vinci, almost did point Vinci. it out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a very highfalutin person over here. Oh, goodness. But no, it's a beautiful picture. And again, yeah. in this in this image we see the star of Feanor above them mm, so yes. they're standing facing each other and there's a star of Feanor on the wall above them um, so even though uh, Galadriel wasn't a big fan of Feanor you know the Feanorian sigil and his influence still plays an important role in um, iconography among the Noldor elves in Middle Earth for a long time and you can see that I wonder if they're going to play with that or if that's just going to be in the background not discussed not actually explored but it's just going to be iconography that will be sprinkled throughout the show um, and i'd be happy with either if they explore it or just leave it as part of the 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 world that we get to chew on on our own and they did plenty of that in the jackson movies like i'm gonna to allude to this whole history and background yeah. that is there uh, which gives more substance to the film and but we're not going to explore it and flesh it out because we can't we don't have time yeah um so yeah, let's gorgeous. So let's get to the next picture here. Um, this is uh, Nazanin uh, Boniadi's Bronwyn is a single mother and healer seen here in the Apothecary in Middle Earth's Southlands. 
Um, and it's a nice picture. It kind of reminds me of Radagast's house in uh, the, the Hobbit films. It's mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. it's a wooden wooden home. It's very earthy, kind of dark but cozy. And she's sitting at a table with a lot of herbs sprinkled around her. Um, she's got a nice blue, you know, I don't know, blue flowing dress. It doesn't necessarily scream any specific culture to me. Uh, but I was trying to figure out, you know, based on the caption, okay, the Southlands, where could this be? And really, it could it could be a lot of places. You know, in the Second Age, we don't have Gondor yet, but Gondor is in the relative south of Middle-earth, and so it could be in what becomes Gondor, um, and there are a lot of, you know, it's close to a lot of ports. Um, so mm. I could see I could see her being either in the Gondorian area or even as far south as Umbar, which is, I think probably the southernmost port that Numenorians frequently uh, visited. And the reason I think that she could be in these areas is because I think it would make sense to have a main Middle-earth human character live in a place where the Numenorians are going to come visit. Because the Numenorian oppression of Middle-earth men is a major plot element in the second Ugh, age. Thank you for saying that because I was racking my brains why I, I think it's cool. She's a single mother and a healer. Sounds like an interesting character, but I'm thinking in my mind, the more skeptical part of me, why? Why have this character? Who is she? What significance could she possibly have? Like, why not use more screen time for Numenor, which we know so much about? Why not use it for the dwarves and the elves? But that is a great point in that you've got to, somebody's got to depict how these cultures were actually oppressed. Um, yes. And that, that, that is a huge um, And not just oppressed by line. Sauron, oppressed by other men, by other the Numenorians, men. Um, which I think, this is one of the things that I think is going to be so great for Tolkien fans, even casual, especially to- casual Tolkien fans who just like the movies. Yeah. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, Numenorians are the, the lauded race of men um, strong right. and you know the, the kings from the sea, yeah, a super race. And but actually, the Numenorians' fall is just is so tragic and operatic. They are become yeah. savage oppressors, slavery, um, human sacrifices. Right. I mean, they go they fall as far as anyone yes. in the history it's of tr- Arda. Yes, it's a true fall from grace. And so, if 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 indeed they are used, they are going to depict that. Um, among the human villages, then I get it. We've got to have a character to focus in on. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And the last photo we have here, this is one I don't know what to make of it, but the caption is, Director J.A. Bayona points the way for two nomadic hunters wandering the fields of Middle-earth. And these two hunters, we have one African-American man, we have one old white guy with a big beard, and they have something on their back that looks like gigantic antlers. Like if they killed the world's biggest moose and ripped yeah. the antlers off and put them on their backs, like wings, they're like antler wings. What are we looking at here? Oh, and they have long yeah. spears. They both have long spears. This looks very fantastical to me. Mm-hmm. This is, this screams fantasy to me. And I guess a few of the other pictures do as well, but um, I kind of like it, you know, <laughs> so, just it's it's a little outrageous but perhaps in context it will it will make more sense yeah i could you know i could get into it i'm not for it i'm not against it it's just it it, the main thing i'm wondering is i'm trying to place these folks into some sort of group 
that I'm familiar with in Middle Earth, and I just can't place them. You know, no, they're well. It says they're nomadic hunters, so maybe it's possible yeah. that they're really just passing characters, and yeah. this was just a cool opportunistic shot. Well, one thing we know about J.A. Biona is that he directed the first two episodes, which everybody has That's been right. talking about. The first two episodes as kind of standalone prequel episodes. Um, I am now just kind of second guessing the extent to which those will be legitimate prequels. You know, we know they're going to be standalone in some capacity. Are they going to be prequels in the sense like, are they going to touch on the first age? Uh, are they going to be set a thousand years before the rest of the episodes? I, I really don't know, but um, frankly, that still doesn't give me a whole lot of help in terms of placing who these characters are. I, we really, I just cannot figure it out. So it's a, it, this is a black box for me and I'll be really curious to see who they are and how they fit in. Um, yeah. It's a cool image. It is cool. Um, but speaking of J.A. Biona, I really was excited by his quote um, in this article because he expresses such confidence in the showrunners. Yeah. And and said, you know, we're passionate about they he knew that they were passionate about the material and that they had a clear direction, things like that. Um that was encouraging to me that yeah. a director would step in and say that he was attracted by the script, that he thought the script was quality um, and he trusted them. And, you know, he, he talked about the pressure they were under um, meeting people's expectations. But, but there's a level of confidence that's encouraging throughout this article. I'll say, I, I think there was humility on on the part of of the two showrunners. There's an awareness about what they're what this undertaking means, but there's also confidence, you know, especially the final sentence of the article when Payne says, just reading straight from the article, Payne says when asked if fan concern and speculation ever unnerves him, before an orchestra starts, audiences mm-hmm. will talk to each other. But then as soon as the music begins, you're in and you're listening to that music. So I there's there's just a really metaphor. nice confidence there. Yeah, it's a great metaphor that says we're making something quality and we know it. And so, yes, there's going to be the naysayers and um, but but we think this work will will speak for itself. I like that. I like that confidence. I don't think it reads as arrogance at all because many times they they mentioned through the article um, that they know that they have huge shoes to fill and and that this is a wildly ambitious project. And it is. I mean, it's crazy. It, it mentions, you know, can we write the the novel that Tolkien never wrote? Um, right. But may have written something like that (laughs) so there's an awareness here there's an awareness um that this this has to succeed it's 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 so huge yeah i did not get the impression at all that they are um dealing with this responsibility casually they recognize the seriousness and the scope of the task um and they are embracing the challenge. You got to have confidence to take on something like this. And so they've got the Definitely. confidence, but they've also got the humility and the respect. It sounds like the respect for the fandom and the source material um, to really want to try and, and do their best. And I think it sounds like they got a good attitude. They know they're not going to be able to please everybody. They know they, as artists, they have to make adaptive choices that will involve changing things. 
um, and they've sort of come to terms with the, the fact that that is necessary and that it won't please everybody, but that they have to do it anyway. Um, and I want to, so I want to end this episode by talking about a couple of um, lines out here that tell us something about the, the series in general. But before we get there, I want to circle back to the issues of uh, uh, Elvish uh, physical expression and some of the conversations that are going on out there. And the three things we highlighted were um, skin color of elves. Can there be people of color as elves? Or at least did Tolkien write any people as uh, elves as people of color? Pointy ears and long hair. Now, the the skin color of the elves, I, I kind of want to skip that one for now, frankly, because it's such an important issue and I want that I want to deal with it more um, thoroughly in a future episode. I think for now, I would just say, I would sort of summarize the concern. A lot of people say that it is an affront to Tolkien to have elves of color or even Numenorians of color because in the opinion of some people, some people believe that it is absolutely conclusively fact that there were no black elves or there were no brown elves and they, they were all white. And I, I, I don't know where they get this impression from. It's not from, because it's not from the text. Um, there's nothing conclusive in the text that forecloses the possibility that there are elves of color. Um, we've said this on the pod many times before. Tolkien rarely talks about skin color. Skin color was just not important to him. It was not an important part of the story. It was not an important part of how he conceived of characters. It was not an important part of how he described their physical appearance. Um, you could probably count on your hands the number of times he describes an elf's skin color. Uh, maybe hands and feet, but you know when you're talking about thousands and thousands of pages and all these characters, it is really a small minority uh, of times. I think you know uh, he's specific that Galadriel has white skin, Arwen has white skin. You know he says Elrond looks like Arwen, so okay, I guess we can assume that Elrond has white skin based on that. Um, you know there are a couple of other specific references that say that certain specific elves have white skin. But beyond that, there really isn't much. Um, something that some people point to is that there are uh, elves are frequently described as having fair skin. But I think from the context, it is clear that fair in that circumstance means beautiful. Uh, and actually, it's not uh, in most of those situations, it's not that they have fair skin. They're just described as being fair. And in that context, fair probably just means beautiful, not light skinned. Um, and there's. So basically what we have is the few examples where he talks about skin color, there are a handful of elves that, okay, we know they're white, but we really don't, there's nothing to go on to indicate that as a general rule, elves are always white. Numenorians, we know we're not white, or I, th I think that there's a better case to be made that they're not white um, because he described them as being more Egyptian in culture and in terms of latitude, longitude being located more around like, you know, Mediterranean areas. So if you were to um, extrapolate from that, you know, considering that this is Middle Earth is loosely supposed to be ancient Earth, um, if they're located in the Mediterranean area, you would think they would have Mediterranean skin tone. So I think from that, to the extent that you imagine what skin tone Numenorians are, they should be more kind of Mediterranean or Middle Eastern, something of that, that vein. So... I said I wasn't going to get into it, and I still have only just scratched the surface. But I, the point I'm trying to make is if you're seeing people online get all up in arms saying that 
elves, no way, cannot be black, cannot be brown. Just pause for a second and realize that that's not as conclusive as as those people are making it out to be. Um, There is plenty of room to imagine that elves could be people of color. It is not inconsistent with anything, in my opinion. Um, I guess the other thing I should raise, the argument that they make is that Tolkien was writing a mythology for England. And so then the implication in their minds is, well, if he's writing a mythology for England, then I guess all the characters have to be white. But he was writing a mythology for England, but that encompassed the entire world. And he certainly didn't consider all the characters to be English. The Numenorians were not the English forebears. I mean, to the extent that any of the the men in Arda are forebears of modern day English people, it's more likely the men of Middle Earth and the Rohirrim are the ones that in terms of language are most closely tied. Their language is more closely linked to Middle English. So if someone says to you, well, it's a mythology for England and therefore they're all white. Again, I don't think that's accurate at all. Um, But I don't want to get too sidetracked on this because it is a very important topic. I think we'll have people on the pod in future episodes to talk more deeply about this. Um, But I think I just want to stake out the claim that, and Jen, I think I can speak for you, that uh, having people of color play elves, play Numenorians, is not an offense to Tolkien's legacy. It in no way, even if he didn't write or envision them as being black or brown characters, considering how little he talked about or cared about skin color, I don't think he would care if he were alive today. I don't think it would matter to him. Um, I really don't. So um, we'll talk about that more on a future episode, but there's a lot of gross stuff going around online. A lot of people who just feel like Amazon, it's all, you know, it's a woke show, quote unquote woke, and that they're going to ruin it with, you know, interjecting racial sensitivities that would offend Tolkien. Um, I I don't agree with that at all. And I think that we're just going to see a show with lots of characters. Um, And you know what? Before we move on from the subject, I mean, Jen, you you, uh, founded the Shakespearean Company in Berkeley. There are tons of Shakespeare plays, tons of Shakespeare adaptations. And the Mm -hmm. characters, the actors and actresses can be played by people of any race. Shakespeare was an English author. All his characters or most of his characters, I mean, were English. Yeah. Does anybody care in Shakespearean companies if no. those characters fact, are played we, by black people? In I mean, fact, there's a big, yeah, in fact, there's a big push in the theater community to diversify and make sure there are people of color in your involved in your company. And why do we why do we do all this? Why is this important? Because these people were excluded from these spaces for so long, for generations and you know, we have to when you're when you're making a show and you're being you're the showrunners, you're there's going to be some modern influences that creep in. You can't make something today that's going to have mass appeal and they need this show to have mass appeal that isn't going to that isn't going to speak to our time in some way. And that's how I feel. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's an important, it is an important thing to talk about. And, and I, I think we will devote an entire episode to, to talking about it because it is sensitive and we want to give it its due, but yeah, thank you for raising that, Michael. And, um, and, and, you know, if people don't like it, they don't have to watch the show. It's, it's, it's a shame. I mean, if someone's going to refuse to watch the show because there's a person of color 
playing an elf or a man. I well, mean, that's, if, if that's a reason that. not to watch a show for you, uh, I don't know how to help you. You know, I mean, that's yeah. that's pretty dramatic in my view. Um, and that's that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> so sure. let's move on because this is an important topic and we ended up getting more sidetracked than I intended to. Um, so let's move on to, I guess, lighter questions of, of image <laughs> and physicality. Do elves have long hair? This is something that people flipped out about. So many people I got upset. I can't believe that people get upset over this oh, stuff. So I just, upset. I can't believe it though. Cause it just doesn't matter. To me, it doesn't matter. I understand it matters to people. This one, this one puzzles the hell out of me because I, I mean, I read the books before watching the Peter Jackson films. And in my, I mean, there are specific elves where Tolkien does specifically say they have long hair. Galadriel mm-hmm. has long hair. Um, and, but he does not specifically say that all elves have long hair. It's not said anywhere. Um, no. And so I didn't, growing up, I didn't imagine all the elves as having long hair. I probably imagined them having like longer hair, like maybe shoulder length, you know. Uh, I, I didn't imagine them having like shaved heads or anything, like really, really shortly cropped hair, probably like a little longer, like medieval, medieval length. Um, but I certainly imagine them having more of a mix of hair lengths. But for some reason, it is very firmly rooted in a lot of people's minds that all elves must have long hair. And I think that comes more from the Jackson interpretation. I guess. That's my guess. They all had long hair in the Jackson interpretation. So that's mm-hmm. what people are sort of tied to at this point. Yeah. But they don't. They clearly made a choice to have the, the male, um, at least the male elves have short hair. I think it's aesthetically really nice. No problem with it. And I'm sure we'll see long-haired male elves. I'm sure we'll see a mix of hair lengths. Um, And, and, you know, the the choice by Jackson and his team to have all long-haired elves was probably in an effort to make elves look different than men in some distinctive way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that was a perfectly fine choice. I have no problem with his decision to give them all long hair, but let's just all like take a breath and realize that uh, that's not necessarily canon. But so let's get into that a little bit because I did a little bit of research. I just wanted to come armed with some knowledge of the of the lore. So I, you know, poked around a little bit. Okay. So in The Lord of the Rings, there are two males that are described as having long hair. Glorfindel, whose hair is long enough to flow behind him while he rides his horse, and Celeborn, whose hair is silver, long, and bright. So those are the two specific examples of male elves with long hair. But those descriptions do not indicate that all elves or all male elves would have long hair. Um, we also know, and I was thinking back from the first age, you know, Glorfindel died while fighting a Balrog in Gondolin, and part of his death involved the Balrog reaching up and grabbing his hair. So Glorfindel must have had long enough hair at that time to be grabbed by a Balrog. Okay, there's another example of an elf having long hair. Um, here's something from, we get some more from the history of Middle-earth. This is from the War of the Jewels, uh, Quendi and Eldar. Elway himself had long and beautiful hair of silver hue, but this does not seem to have been a common feature of the Sindar, though it was found among them occasionally, especially in the nearer or remoter kin of Elway. So it's not clear whether the does not seem to have been a common feature, refers to the length of the hair or the silver hue of the hair. Um, but again, this is, I'm just trying to find examples where Tolkien talks about the length of hair. Uh, here's another one. This is from The Lost Road. 
and other writings, commentary on Baron and Tenubiel. Then Kelogorm arose amid the throng, and Quintus Silmarillion, this is followed by Golden was his long hair. In the lay at this point, uh, Kelogorm has gleaming hair. Um, and I'm just going to kind of skip through here. The phrase was removed in the Silmarillion text on account of the dark hair of the Noldoran princes, um, but he remains Kelogorm the Fair. And so I point that out again because Kelogorm is describing as having golden long hair. Fingon, he wore his long dark hair in great plates braided with gold, so it had to be long enough to be braided. Um, the hair of Olwe, who's one of the original elves, was long and white. We get that again, War of the Jewels, which is in the history of Middle-earth. So I pulled out as many examples as I could find on short notice of elves having long hair. None of those descriptions anywhere indicated that it must have long hair. Okay. Now there are a couple things that people do point to to support the notion that they have long hair. From a draft of the Silmarillion, it says, um, quote, but most it was their wont to sail on their swift ships upon the waters of the Bay of Elvenholm or to walk in the waves upon the shore with their long hair gleaming like foam in the light beyond the hill. So that is a general descriptor for elves and their long hair could be interpreted. Their long hair could be, be interpreted to apply. I to like all her elves. personally. They're long hair. They're <laughs> long hair. But that was from a draft and um, the published Silmarillion did not include long. It was removed by Christopher Tolkien. I'm not sure why, but he considered the, the, the version that did not have long to be, I guess the most current version. So again, there's an example to support the notion they all have long hair, but it was removed, which to me indicates it's actually uh, inconsistent with what Tolkien most recently believed, at least in the view of Christopher Tolkien. From the nature of Middle-earth, which is uh, not a part of the history of Middle-earth, but I kind of lump it together. It was very it was published very recently in an essay called Hair. <laughs> Ingwe, it says Ingwe had curling curling golden hair. Okay. Ingwe, one of the original elves, had curling hair. How many of you imagined elves as having curly hair? Well, there was an elf with curly hair. So that it's not all long, straight flowing hair. Um, in, in that same uh, passage, though, it says Finway and Muriel had long, dark hair. So had Feanor and all the Noldor. So we can take from that, that supports the idea that all the Noldor had long, dark hair. In the Shibboleth of Feanor, which again, History of Middle-Earth, this is what people, until the Nature of Middle-Earth was published, this is the thing that was cited most frequently. It says, quote, all the Eldar had beautiful hair and were especially attracted by hair of exceptional loveliness, but the Noldor were not specially remarkable in this respect. And there is no reference to Finway as having had hair of exceptional length, abundance, or beauty beyond the measure of his people. Uh, this makes a lot of folks think that the implication is that elves probably all had longish hair, since to have especially beautiful hair, Finway would have had to have longer hair than average for his people. I think that's a bit of a stretch uh, interpretively. Yeah. You know, it, it could mean the opposite. It could mean that the hair was medium length. It could mean that they valued exceptionally long hair. But it doesn't mean that they all had it. And in fact, the fact that having really long hair is something that was exceptionally beautiful would indicate that they, in my view, that they didn't all have really long flowing hair. So from what I found, I think that's basically all the references. <laughs> and none of that is remotely conclusive to me. Um, and most of those are from drafts, unpublished material, yeah. you know, not from the published Lord of the Rings. So there's really not much 
you can you can believe it if you want. I mean, you can have your head cannon, but it's not at all inconsistent in my view um, to have elves with varying hair lengths. Um, yeah. And before we move on from hair, I think hair color is more interesting because Elrond here has blonde hair, and we did hear in this quote that I read earlier that all the Noldor had dark hair. And that's one that's one thing that Tolkien was pretty clear about that no, the Noldor have like dark black hair. So Elrond really should have black hair, not blonde hair. Um, I don't really care. I don't think it was that like it's not like it ever factored into the plots in any way. Um, but it is probably a, a change. So if you want to get upset about minor changes, there you go. Get upset that Elrond's hair is blonde. Get upset. <laughs> well, I think it's what's clear from these photos and from the article is that they have a perspective. And it is a strong perspective aesthetically. And they've made choices, deliberate choices, and it is not going to be the same as what Tolkien envisioned in some instances. And I think that the things that they've changed, they have deemed non-essential to the plot, non-essential to the essence of what we're getting at. Because none of these things have a huge bearing on how the story is going to play out right we can all agree on that can we all agree on that we can I all agree so agreed <laughs> okay i think we've solved okay. it we've solved it the fandom is going to cool down i have spoken i just <laughs> shut down all of the debate <laughs> right <laughs> problem solved problem solved <laughs> how many different fandoms can you love at once at four cats boutique there is no limit Katie and Jordan have prints, bookmarks, stickers, earrings, keychains, and more for all of our beloved fandoms. Get yourself a set of Lord of the Rings bookmarks, one special for each in the trilogy. Maybe some Hobbit hole earrings, a Wheel of Time sticker, or some Star Wars blueprints of a TIE fighter and an X-Wing. You can even find prints for the Legends of Zelda, like Majora's Mask, or the Master Sword. Dune, Marvel, Game of Thrones, The Witcher, the list goes on and on. So head over to 4 Cats Boutique on Etsy to get something for yourself or a loved one from almost any fandom you can think of. That's the number four and cats with a K. 4 Cats Boutique on Etsy. Oh, yes. the ears. Well, let me ask you this. Okay, so. I mean, that's another example, though. It's, it's another example. It's of, another example where it's not conclusively. They probably didn't have pointy ears. I don't. I can't think of an instance. I don't think they did. I never thought they, they didn't did. They didn't have pointy yeah. ears. They don't there's no reference to that in the books. Literally no reference. You can write us, you can read you know where to find us, folks, if we're wrong about that, but I don't think I'm wrong about that. Nope, nope, nope. I'm pretty sure that we're not wrong about that. And this is even sketchier than the hair thing. There's if you want to believe that that all elves, or at least all the Noldoran elves, had long hair, long flowing hair, you know, you got at least some basis for believing that. I don't think it's conclusive yeah. and you shouldn't get mad about it, but at least there's something there. The the ears thing. There is almost nothing. There's one uh, piece of evidence that people always point to. But I, I want to, again, emphasize literally nothing in the Lord of the Rings proper or in The Hobbit or in the Silmarillion anywhere that says uh, elves had pointy ears. Not one example of an even one elf that has pointy ears. Never, ever addressed. Okay, so where did this come from? Why do elves have pointy ears? Well, I think part of the reason that the Jackson team decided to give elves pointy ears is because in just sort of popular mythological culture, they have pointy ears. And so people kind of imagine right. them that way. And I think that was also an outgrowth of a lot of the fan art 
um, that people had done gave mm-hmm. them pointy ears. So I think that this kind of perception of elves as having pointy ears had just sort of emerged and persisted, but it is not rooted in the text. Now, mm-hmm. people who feel passionate about this will point to letter number 27. So let me pull out letter number 27. This is a letter that Tolkien wrote to the Houghton Mifflin Company, um, and he was addressing his American publishers, uh, written around 1938, March or April 1938, which is uh, after The Hobbit had been published um, and Lord of the Rings was you know, in its early stages. His publisher had asked him to supply drawings of Hobbits for use in future editions of The Hobbit. So in response to that inquiry, he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, he basically said, um, it'd probably be better if you had a professional artist draw The Hobbits. I'm not so great which sidebar, Tolkien's drawings were actually kind of awesome. (laughs) But he said, I'm not going to draw you anything. I'm going to describe it. And he says in describing a hobbit, uh, they have a round, jovial face, ears only slightly pointed and elvish. Mm. All right. So that's what people point to, that hobbit ears are slightly pointed and elvish. So people say, oh, well, if slightly pointed ears are elvish, then that means his elves had pointed ears. I think... That interpretation is taken entirely out of context. And here's why. If he is trying to describe to a layman, a publisher who may or may not have read the book, uh, not a publisher, but an illustrator who may or may not be familiar with The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. Well, let's take it first. If he's if he's trying to describe it to someone who is familiar with Lord of the Rings, why would he... Why would he refer to Hobbit's pointy ears as elvish? Why would that be a helpful el- reference when there's literally not a single example of an elf with pointy ears all throughout the Lord of the Rings, right? So if you're trying to tell someone, oh, the Hobbit's ears are elvish, they wouldn't think that they're pointy because there are no pointy elvish ears in the Lord of the Rings. I would also point out that in this quote, elvish is in quotation marks. Earlier in the paragraph, he says, I picture a fairly human figure, not a kind of, quote, fairy rabbit. He uses quotation marks um, as sort of like scare quotes to refer to something that is not exactly something. That's a terrible way to describe it. But I think when he's referring to Elvish, he's referring Mm -hmm. to the popular sort of... um, Fairy. Yeah. The the commonly held vision of what elves are, like the little, little impish elves, like Santa's elves. Those are the types of elves he's referring to. He's using a common reference to tell illustrators that... Hobbits have pointy ears, you know, kind of like the elvish ears in popular fairy culture. I do not think he's referring to elves in his stories um, because there are references to dwarves and he does not use scare quotes in that instance. So I think this reference to elvish is this reference to the popular elves, not to the elves in his stories. And because it wouldn't make any sense for him when describing hobbit ears to point someone to the elves in his stories because there are no examples of elves with pointy ears. Precisely. If it stories. was that important to him, he would he he would have stated it explicitly in the books, in the books themselves. Yep. He would have stated yep, yep, it yep. explicitly, describe them in detail. The things that he cares about, he describes in detail. Now, um in the book itself. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> people know that his descriptions, he spends a lot of time on nature relatively little time on physical appearance, um, mm-hmm. whether it's ears, hair, skin color, or anything else. Before we leave the subject, I do want to, there, I will mention two other pieces of quote unquote evidence that people cite to support the notion that elves have pointy ears, because I know if I don't reference them, um, someone is going to email us very angrily and smartly and, and say, no, 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 you forgot this. 
Um, there are two linguistic manuscripts that people cite. Basically, in these linguistic manuscripts, there is a connection between uh, Quendian words for ears and leaves, leaves. And so people think, all right, well, there's sort of this relationship between the words that must mean that elvish ears are leafy or you know pointed i'm not going to try and describe it any in any greater detail than that because frankly i don't understand a lot of this linguistic stuff it's like kind of very over my head and it doesn't lend itself to uh oral description on a on a podcast but i think it is that is a very very that's thin that's pretty thin like i've i've read the original source material on this stuff and even though i don't really understand it it's not at all conclusive it's, nowhere does it say elvish ears are like leaves. That's not what it says. It's just people are sort of extrapolating from, you know, the roots and origins of certain words and trying to draw a connection. So, yes, I am aware of those two linguistic manuscripts and that they are frequently cited to support this notion. No, I do not think that it is conclusive at all. So, in my mind, elves do not have pointy ears. It doesn't bother me that they're going to give them pointy ears, um, but. This is my secret gripe. I wish they didn't have pointy ears. <laughs> you didn't think that we'd have the last, the final word on pointy ears and hair length on our podcast, Dissecting the Vanity Fair <laughs> article. But there you go. We have the last word. Um, before we wrap up, can we just quickly, very quickly talk about Tom Shippey? Oh, sure. Sure. <laughs> like, just really... <laughs> I feel like we didn't spend enough time on what the actual article said, but we've got to talk about this. I mean, poor Tom Shippey. Like, I just want, I just want to make a do a skit where Tom Shippey is like, basically, the article says he goes to a he goes to he did an unsanctioned interview to a German fan site. Whoops. Opining on what the show could and couldn't explore, and then he and then shortly there after he was not involved anymore. <laughs> um, so he, nobody will say what happened, but, um, a comment made by, uh, another person, a drought at the Tolkien professor was, it seems that the NDA that they had them sign basically says, if you tell anyone, we can put you through a wood chipper. <laughs> so I just love picturing Tom should be like going off like, Oh yes. Well, it seems as though the show and then like getting yeah, sat down yeah. like a child and chastised. Right, and, like, right. He spoke too whoops. freely and he got axed. Yeah. Uh, that was like, I mean, the earliest uh, piece of drama that people would latch on to uh, to suggest that the production was going to be a disaster. Like, oh, they fired Tom Shippey, who we love, and they're just going to destroy this material. Um, and th this is interesting that maybe it was a result of him breaching his NDA and they're like, look, dude, we can't have you around here if you're going to go blabbing to people. So if that's the case, it's kind of interesting. They've been really serious about mm -hmm. ab about keeping this on lock until until now when they're trying to get people yeah. hyped about the yeah. show. Now they're letting the mar marketing materials flow. So there are three other things I want to talk about that, you know, we've gone through the images. We've gone through the uh, physicality of the characters that we get from the images. But there are three sort of broader things um, that we can glean from this article that I think are really, really interesting. There's a lot of little stuff, but these are the, the, the big ones. So um, the first thing is we learn that the showrunners are going to be compressing the timeline of the second age significantly. We have debated this. How are they going to approach this, this plot line? You know, the second age is literally thousands of years. Um, humans are not immortal. So they're going to be dying off every couple hundred years. So what are they going to do? Are they going to compress the timeline to tell the, 
the story of the second age in in one go are they going to have multiple plot lines going running simultaneously uh and jumping like um throughout the timeline um are they going to do first season set in early second age next season jumps ahead uh 500 years how are they going to approach this because we recognize it was a major challenge well the answer is and we know now they are compressing the timeline Uh, and we'll quote in the novels the aforementioned things take place over thousands of years but Payne and mckay have compressed events into a single point in time it is their biggest deviation from the text and they know it's a big swing Quote, we talked with the Tolkien estate, says Payne. If you are true to the exact letter of the law, you're going to be telling a story in which your human characters are dying off every season because you're jumping 200 years in time. And then you're not meeting really big, important canon characters until season four. Look, there might be some fans who want us to do a documentary of Middle Earth, but we're going to tell one story that unites all these things. End quote. So that is, that is a... Uh, so this is one thing that I am not in favor of. Um, I'll still enjoy the show, blah, blah, blah. You know me, I'm, I'm optimistic, I'll enjoy it. But I wish they didn't take this approach for a couple of reasons. Not just because it's it's uh, a deviation from the text, although that does irk me, I guess, a tad. But it's first off, it's an entirely unnecessary deviation from the text. I think they could have focused on one story set in one point of time. Because there are multiple, there's material from multiple different stories. Sauron goes to battle with the Numenorians a couple times, um, a few times. You know, there there are different plot lines at different stages, and they could have had multiple series. You know, they spent like 200, 250 million just buying the rights. I thought that they were going to take this three thousand year period and mine it for multiple shows, because there's plenty of material in there, and the multiple mm-hmm. shows could have through lines that connect them and you know maybe the shows would build up together like you would have to watch all the shows and there could be even like a, a big the big final war of the ring um at the end of the second age to kick up third age that could be the culmination of multiple series like working together there are lots of ways they could have approached it by compressing everything into one story one point in time that cuts off some of those opportunities and to the extent you do want it to, they, they did want to tell any of those stories or have spinoffs. Okay, well, now they have to jam it into this compressed timeline. It has to be consistent with the compressed timeline. So if if they're putting the forging into a, a time period that's, you know, 100 years of Sauron's capture in Numenor and the downfall of Numenor and the War of the Ring uh, or the War of Men and Elves at the end of the Second Age, if you're going to put all of those together your spinoffs have to be consistent with that, which forces them to change even more things. So again, I'm okay with changes and they can make a great story. But the thing that upsets me the most is it limits their opportunities for spinoffs that go deep into um, discrete, specific plot lines that we might want to see, like Aldarion and Arendis. Like I think maybe now they can't do Aldarion and Arendis at all, or at least they have to contort it significantly to make it fit into this new compressed timeline. Right. I mean, I see what you're saying. I think I think I agree with that, but I do see why they did it. And the purpose of this is that in the article, they say, you know, this the center of the core of this story is, of course, the forging of the rings, but the rings for the elves, rings for the dwarves, rings for the men and the one ring for Sauron and exploring 
all those powers, what they do to those races, and we they want to they want to show that happening simultaneously, and so because that's their objective, we we that's what they had to do was compress the timeline because um, all these things happen so so far apart, and they want to make a they want to they don't want to clearly make all these spinoffs that show. Okay, now we're gonna do the dwarves. Now we're gonna do the elves. They want it all to happen simultaneously, um, and it's going to be. It is going to be a lot like Game of Thrones in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, look, you've got massive storylines all happening at the same time, and they do all tie together. But it worked in Game of Thrones. We'll see if it works here, right? Yeah, but the difference is way more happens in the Second Age and and oh, like sure, it's not than happened. No, it's in not Game exactly. It's not exactly the same at all. I'm just saying the storytelling is the same. Yeah, but, I just I just worry that but it the could source fall material to is very different. Trying to do too much in in too short a time, you know, you get mm. this with like like the the Justice League movie. They tried to cram too much into one movie. You got to introduce all these new characters and their origin stories, and and then there's a team yeah. up, and then it's like way too much, and so you get basically just very very surface level of everything. And so I worry if they're like, all right, we're just going to compress everything. There's going to be the forging of the rings. There's going to be the initial um, war between elves and Sauron. And then the Numenorians are going to save the day. And then Sauron's going to retreat. And then he'll come back. And then he's going to get captured and go to Numenor. And then Numenor is going to. But we don't know what they're going to cut out. Are they going to do all that, you know, in five seasons? We don't know. I mean, well, I'm sure they've cut things. We'll see. We'll see if they made smart cuts. (laughs) I don't want to cut any. Those things that I just said are the, that is the most basic sketch of the key events of the second age. If you're cutting any of that stuff, those are massive cuts. And that's a loss because those those are are great stories that we want to see adapted. Those are key parts of the epic tale of Sauron's uh, attempt to dominate Middle Earth. I mean, I think you're right. I do. I, I think you're right about that. Like everything you mentioned is is so important. I hope that they are not putting like random hobbits in instead of those things. <laughs> um, although I'm more after this article, I'm more open to the hobbits being yeah. in because. Yeah. Speaking because of hobbits, they, there's a great little quote here. Quote, one of the very specific things the texts say is that hobbits never did anything historic or noteworthy before the Third Age, says McKay. But really, does it feel like Middle Earth if you don't have hobbits or something like hobbits in it? Uh, end quote. The Hobbit ancestors in this era are called Harfoots. They may not live in the Shire, but they are satisfyingly Hobbit adjacent. McKay and Payne have constructed a pastoral Harfoot society that thrives on secrecy and evading detection so that they can play out a kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or dead story in the margins of the bigger quests. Two lovable, curious Harfoots played by Megan Richards and Mark Kelly Cavanaugh encounter a mysterious lost man whose origin promises to be one of the show's most enticing enigmas. So this... Um, this allays one of my biggest fears about how they would approach hobbits, which is what you already identified that, okay, if they're going to make hobbits main characters, does that mean that they're going to participate in the larger plot? Are they going to be active participants and important in terms of how like you defeat Sauron? Because that would be really consistent and it would undermine the significance of the hobbits emergence in the third age. Yeah, completely. And um, looks like they're not going to do that. They're going to. <laughs> I love the comparison to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yeah. are dead. I was in that play sidebar. Um, but also two female hobbits. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Cool. I mean, yes. Bring on female hobbits. You get a buddy comedy as with le- female as, hobbits. Yeah, at female this time. 
Yeah. Two female hobbits and a weird old man. Like that does. And a weird. That does yeah. actually. That is like good fodder for a humorous plot line. Yeah, it just a just a fun little. It's kind of like you know play side out plot. I mean, hopefully like it ties Encino in. Man mostly. or some old like eighties movie where what's that one with uh, the guy who like was a f- frozen from the ice age and they thaw him out. Oh, oh yeah. Like Brendan Fraser. <laughs> yeah, so funny. That's that's what we're gonna see here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I feel less freaked about the Hobbits. I still hope that it it fits in and it's not just some weird sidebar like, oh, okay, that plot line I don't care about, you know. Right, but, right, right. Hopefully, it's it's just uh, we'll fun see. and well written. You know, yeah. that's always yeah. the key, always the key. And I think the last thing I wanted to call out here, um, there was talk and concern early on that they were going to make this show sort of a Game of Thrones knockoff with nudity, excessive violence. And just try and really give this a rated R rating, which would not at all feel consistent with Tolkien. And those fears were ramped up when the news broke that they had hired an intimacy coordinator, which made people fear, oh, there's going to be nudity and sex. Uh, This is going to be awful. Um, They confirmed that that is not going to be the case. Quote, McKay says the goal was to make a show for everyone, for kids who are 11, 12, and 13, even though sometimes they might have to pull the blankets up over their eyes if it's a little too scary. We talked about the tone in Tolkien's books. This is a material that is sometimes scary and sometimes very intense, sometimes quite political, sometimes quite sophisticated, but it's also heartwarming and life-affirming and optimistic. It's about friendship, and it's about brotherhood and underdogs overcoming great darkness, end quote. And my heart just soared when I read that. Oh, me too. This was a wonderful thing to read. I think I said early on, I want this show because I was, what, 11 or 12 when The Lord of the Rings came out? And so I would be so bummed if they excluded a young audience from this show. And, And the fact that they're really taking, staying true to Tolkien's essence and what he would have wanted in this way to heart is important and it's important to hear that from the showrunners mm-hmm. um so yeah this was this was a great bit of news definitely a highlight in the article so there you have it Th- that covers i think all the really good stuff in in the article i would recommend you go read it yourself it's not that long it's really well written great images uh, go check it out we'll put a link to it in our show notes um and I just want to leave on a very positive note. I think so far what I've seen from the official marketing materials makes me very hopeful. And you can nitpick, and that's what we do here. We overanalyze. Um, we're fully engaged in that process. But uh, I always want to end by stepping back and saying, ah, this is looking pretty good so far. You know, I'm excited. Overall, I'm feeling good. We're feeling good and hopefully more to come. Stay tuned for the Super Bowl trailer. We are waiting with bated breath. Um, Let us know your thoughts about the article. And of course, you know where to find us. You can uh, find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are Watch Party, Lord of the Rings. And if you want to email us, you can email watchpartylotr at gmail.com. Please like, subscribe, and share if you're enjoying this podcast. And thank you all so much for listening. We will, I want to say, see you soon. 
that's not accurate. We will be in your ears. Yeah. We can't even soon. say we will hear you soon because we don't hear anybody. We're just alone <laughs> in our rooms. <laughs> you will hear us soon, very soon. May the wind under your wings bear you to where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. 